Welcome to Piedmont Arts, made possible by Quo Vadis and Ortho Carolina. I'm Rachel Stewart. The Harlem Quartet performs at Free Range Brewing in Charlotte on Saturday, February 19th at 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. The concert is presented by Chamber Music Raleigh and WDAV. Based in New York, the quartet was founded in 2006 by the Sphinx Organization, a national nonprofit devoted to building diversity in classical music and providing educational access for underserved communities. And the Harlem Quartet has performed with world-renowned classical and jazz artists since then, people like Awadajan Pratt, Chick Corea, Anthony McGill, Gary Burton, just to name a few. They won a Grammy in 2013 for their collaboration with Chick Corea on the Hot House album, and currently they are quartet in residence at the Royal College of Music in London. And they recently just had their solo debut with the New York Philharmonic, which is an important milestone for them. I'm lucky enough to uh, be joined today by violinist Ilmar Gavilan, uh, who's going to chat with us just for a few minutes. So Ilmar, welcome and thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Why don't we just start with, I would call it your mission, which is a commitment to diverse programming and broadening your ensemble's repertoire, and I guess by extension, other ensembles' repertoire and, and broadening the audience. You've been together since 2006, I guess, pursuing this mission. Can you say a little bit about what it takes or what's important to have, you know, to make that happen, to reach new audiences and find new repertoire? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our mission is a, is a driving force in our heart. And, uh, you know, we are musicians, so we, we have a huge emotional component to what we do. The mission is to bring in new audiences, especially from cultures that don't uh, identify themselves with classical music. So that's why we started in Harlem. We had, a, we had an office there and we went to every single school in Harlem. It was remarkable, especially to me, being from Cuba originally and always dreaming to, of going to Carnegie Hall, of, of going to Washington, New York Philharmonic, that these kids live so close to all of these dreams of mine, and yet they had no interest or a sense of missing out. Uh, they literally could take the A train, a piece that we, <laughs> we'll talk about it later. They could literally take the A train one stop from 125th get off in 59 and walk to Carnegie Hall. There's many programs that would provide even free tickets sometimes or visits to open rehearsals, things like that. But it was the lack of exposure that made this a, a very impossible task. It's like in a realistic task. Parents thought, you know what, that's not, that's not something we just hear at home, and, you know. The kids have this image, you know, like uh, being a sportsman would be super cool because that's what they get bombarded with. There's nothing wrong with being a great sport, sportsman, <laughs> uh, but you, you get my point. So for us, looking and sounding like them, by sounding like them, I mean with slight Spanish accent perhaps, or just looking, you know, like Melissa has beautiful curly hair, a female that does that at, at this high level, that's simply an inspiration for these kids. And while we were doing these outreach concerts at schools, we quickly found out that the uh, standard repertoire wasn't enough to hold their attention for so long. So let's say we completely uh, worship a work like the Dissonance Quartet by Mozart. We, we think it's a masterpiece, that's why we program it. 
Yet, if we were to only play that amazing piece, most likely at, at some point they will check out and start talking or, or, or just being forced to pay attention and be quiet, but not really engage. So we started bringing in music that we thought it could uh, relate better, and we were right. So that's the first time we brought in, um, we decided to make an arrangement of Take the A Train. And just, we had this idea, you know, like it's a great uh, sideways to talk about, you know, you can take the A train to Carnegie Hall, just sign up and we will give you tickets and whatnot. And that worked. The kids thought that's really cool. And then we we had a really a standing point where, what what is it that the A train and a minuet by Monster have in common? Nothing. Like, you know, there's... <laughs> Well, no, you know, they're both dance music. They're, they were made to, to be swung. At some point, people dance minuet, and also they, they dance to take the A train. And uh, again, we, we just tried to humanize the whole idea of classical music and, you know, talk about things that they relate. Like, you, you remember that scene in the Titanic where they decided to play music going down? You know why they did that? And, you know, we, we, bring, we bring this element of, something they can relate to rather than being spoken spoken down to with a lecture. We just uh, always believe that um, our music, including of dead composers, is not a museum piece that you should not mess with. Just put your hands behind your back and, and just worship it like some sort of uh, out-of-touch um, art form. We think it's a living art form and we always bring that element of communication and i think that's really important and we it's not that only we do that but we take it uh, i think as the heart of our work that kind of outreach yes and also our i think our whole um demeanor on the stage for instance take the dissonance quartet right everything by mozart is operatic and by definition, it has a, it's programmatic. So we don't just rely on the music to be beautiful and maybe a background for a nice elevator, right? We want the music to speak. And this has nothing to do with only outreach, even for people that are chamber music connoisseurs. I think sometimes we get jaded with, with the classical repertoire. And, and uh, again, it's something uh, that needs a fresh touch. We believe, for instance, that Mozart was a great improviser. So we ourselves like to improvise a little bit in, in some part of our programs. And we see that relation. And not that we play Mozart like we would play jazz, but the freshness which uh, Mozart would have brought if he would have improvised certain passages. Not all of it, but he would take a, a certain bridge in the music. And you can tell by the writing that just that part that made it into paper is one of the improvisations he liked the most. But at the heart of the passage, there was a toss of nature to it, a freshness to it. That after we go to conservatory, we get doctor degrees, we, you know, we, we do all of these studies. Sometimes musicians, including myself, we, we lose that freshness, that approach. Mozart didn't study Mozart. He was Mozart. He improvised it. <laughs> So we have to recapture that essence. And uh, that ties into our firm belief that genres got divided by marketing process. Music is music and improvised music has been around since the beginning, since Bach improvising in the organ. 
It's just that jazz was improvised by perhaps predominantly African-American people. And uh, it all of a sudden became like something that is not classical. Wait, well, it is. It's just a different type of, of music. And uh, that just speaks to our philosophy that good music is, is that. It's just good music. If you communicate uh, with attention to details and uh, a finishing that, by finishing, I mean, when we play jazz, we don't just think it's some kind of anchor that doesn't deserve the same, the same attention. No, no, no. We still play as in tune, as, as precise as we would do Mozart. And we would not violate the jazz codes of style by, let's say, sounding gypsy or sounding like tango. The same way we would not violate the classical style by making Mozart sound like Brahms or like something else. So I think that um, approach to all music deserving the same respect and all audiences deserving the same chance to communicate with the music, I think that it's what uh, makes us our mission complete. It strikes me that probably just about anywhere you go in the United States, whether it's Harlem or a suburban community in the Midwest that might be predominantly white, there is very little familiarity with classical music. And you were talking about how we've seemed to have sort of put it in a box, put things in stone, um, and don't remember that Mozart, Beethoven, Bach were all these great improvisers when they performed. So it just strikes me that that's, that's a big job. It's like a whole, probably a whole generation or two that that don't know uh, this history or, or don't look at the music the way that you're trying to help people look at it. Right. Also, I think, well, you know, the media has a lot to do with that. Um, the images we get bombarded with is that uh, classical music is, um, you know, a very high class thing. People have to dress a certain way, look a certain way, behave artificially refined manner. Don't get me wrong, our music, classical music has a lot of refinement and uh, just like uh, porcelain sometimes can be very delicate. But at the heart of it, there is this humanness. And uh, I think it's important that all presenters and the media try to give a more complete image, not just the porcelain, not, not just the china that you can break fine champagne glass image, but also the humor nature to, to this music. Mozart is full of humor. Sometimes you can hear in Beethoven like toast with beer, like very peasant-like gestures that is closer to country music than to, you know, a royal salon. And uh, I think it's, it's up to all of us to to make that leap and to claim the true nature of all of this, which is not, a, it doesn't belong in a museum. It belongs in our daily life. As long as we understand that it's, it really relates to all of us. And also the nature of the music is so universal that it has nothing to do with race. So you're absolutely right. A uh, suburban mid Midwestern is un as unrelated to this music as any kid in in, um, in Harlem. And uh, we experienced that. We did a residency in Mobile, Alabama, and we went to this rural school with everybody looked really like Nordic, beyond <laughs> white. It was just everybody looked uh, with um, blonde hair, blue eyes amazingly beautiful, thick Southern accent, and they never seen a string quartet. Uh, they seen a fiddle, 
and they thought it's a different instrument. So we had a lot of fun just relating to these kids and uh, they really got it because it also depends how you present it. No, nobody reacts well to a, you know, a lecture, nobody. Yeah. But if you, if you relate, if you relate, you know, like Mozart was a very mischievous kid and uh, it really has to do with all of us. It's not just one aspect. It's, uh, we, we tend to like to box things in an image rather than see the humanity of, of things. We do that all the time. So um, little by little, you know, I actually get why. Like institutions need a very classy image, let's say to convince Mercedes-Benz to sponsor a concert. So it's in, it, it has to do with that, with sponsorships, with the image you want to feel you know, you, you need to dress up because you want to feel special. And that's all beautiful. It's just that it takes away the other side that without, <laughs> you know, uh, it, this reminds me of something that uh, Aaron Dworkin, the, the founder of Sphinx Competition, used to say, and he's so right. Our big cities have more and more diversity, but the big symphonies, the biggest symphonies in our big cities are only sponsored by a very small amount of people. So if the genre needs to survive, we do need to include more people. It's a matter of survival. It, it really is. <laughs> it's very interesting, but it's true. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of people across the spectrum that don't think of it as their music. They've got other music that they think of as their music. Right. I want to ask you about uh, work on the program. When you come to Charlotte, you will you will be playing Mozart's Dissonance Quartet. You're going to play music by Wynton Marsalis, uh, the great uh, trumpeter, and uh, Billy Strayhorn, who wrote Take the A Train, um, awesome composer. And you're also going to play a piece by your own father. Could you talk about that piece um, and explain a little bit about your background? I know that you're from Cuba originally. Yes, no, that's the, this piece is always like a big hit. Really, the reason it's a big hit is because is full of Afro-Cuban rhythms that is associated with, let's say, salsa mm. or, or, or that type of dance music. It's not associated with string instruments. So my dad is, is very ingenious in the way he writes a music that belongs with drums and in ch with chanting. I should say, historically, this, this word, wawanko, is not a Spanish word. It's a, an African word because the rhythm which has a very peculiar uh, rhythmic pattern, goes like this, ta, 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 ta. That's commonly known here as the rumba. That pattern came, it was brought by the slave that came to Cuba. And um, used, they used to chant and do that with the percussion instruments. So this, the chanting part is easy for string players because we naturally are lyrical instruments, but the percussion is not. So very often we have to literally hold, uh, let's say I will hold an open A with my bow while tapping with the, the left hand, creating that rhythm. And um, very soon you just forget about everything I'm just saying now, you start getting involved with the rhythm and it's a very contagious rhythm. And I have to say it's my dad's best seller. I, you know, I help him sometimes with renting his music and whatnot, and that's the one that most orchestra want. So we are playing a, quartet version of an originally symphonic piece. It's almost like a Cuban national anthem in the in the music world, 
everybody associates that sound with with Cuba. That's how famous that is. Is that a rhythm that uh, is related to the Bo Diddley beat, by chance? That bomb, 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 bomb. The one you you sang, tan, 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 is the is the common uh, version of it, which came after that one. And I love that you asked me that because that's something we do in outreach. What you sang is the common clave, tan, 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 tan. This one, the third of the beats, is delay, like tan, 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 tan. Tan, tan, tan. That little weight um, is what makes it what one call, which was the first. So it's the grandfather of the salsa. Okay. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for, for talking to us today uh, about what you do um, with the Harlem Quartet. And I, I did not mention who the other members are. So before I sign off, I just want to point out, uh, we've been talking to Ilmar Gavilan, who's the vi violinist. The other violinist in the quartet is Melissa White. The violist is Jaime uh, Amador. And the cellist is Felix Umansky. Hopefully I said those all right. <laughs> but, um, but we're we will look forward to having you in Charlotte on February 19th. It's a Saturday. Again, two performances, one at 1 p.m., followed by another one at 3 p.m. at Free Range Brewing in Charlotte, a concert presented by Chamber Music Raleigh and WDAV. And Ilmar, thank you again so much. It was great to talk to you today. My pleasure. Thank you. Piedmont Arts is made possible by Quo Vadis and Ortho Carolina. And I'm Rachel Stewart.